You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Next up on Destination Freedom. And let me just add to that because we know that that the prison industrial complex need raw material. Right. Like like any uh, manufacturer or factory, the raw material for the prison industrial complex are people, mainly black and brown people. And we do know that our society has been extremely over primitive when it came down to people of color. Mm-hmm. I was... Um, on the uh, on the uh, the uh, state parole board here in Colorado back in the ni- early 1990s, and I remember talking with one of the state senators, and his whole idea about the prison system was that he wanted to build more and more prisons, even privatize them, because that would reduce uh, the crime rate. And he called it being tough on crime. I call it being stupid on crime because mm. you cannot build enough prisons. For people because lawmakers believe that their job is to make more laws right. every year there's more laws being created to criminalize more type of behaviors um so there's no way to actually build our way out of this this this, this crime problem that we have in america we just simply need to become smart on crime Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast, a copyrighted program of No Credits Production, LLC. I'm producer, director, Donnie L. Betts. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Anthony Young. Dr. Young has been practicing mental health in Colorado for over 40 years. He has a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Denver. He has taught psychology courses for 26 years at the University of Colorado. In the past, Dr. Young has partnered with the Department of Corrections and the Mental Health Institute in Pueblo, Colorado. Currently, he is the president of Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists. Next on Destination Freedom, our conversation with Dr. Tony Young. And now, Destination Freedom. We're honored to have as our guest, Dr. Anthony P. Young, who is the uh, executive director and president of Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists. And he has years and years of experience. We're going to talk about uh, that, and we're also going to talk about how people of color and black people in particular are dealing with um, the mental health issues, not only just in day-to-day life, but in particular now because of the pandemic, COVID-19. Dr. Young, welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast. Thank you, Donnie. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, you have a lot, and we have worked together several times on on this radio show in a different in different format. That is when we did the uh, when we were doing the uh, radio drama series, which we still do. 
But now I want to talk to you today about real mental health issues. And there have been a lot of things that are happening this year in 2020, not including the pandemic. So first, we're going to start out about how do you think people of color and black people in particular have been dealing with and what can they do to just make themselves be better when they're dealing with things of systemic racism and also the protests that happened over the summer and continue to happen throughout the country? Mm-hmm. Well, um, first of all, let me say that it's, um, our existence as a people in this country has always been challenging. There's not been one day since we were kidnapped and enslaved and brought to, brought to the Americas that we have not been subjected to terrorism. To be real clear, um, we have constantly been under assault. So we've dealt with this ongoing pandemic, if you will, of white supremacy. To be polite, we call it racism, but it's been subjugation in every area of our existence. Um, so that's been one thing that we've had to deal with. Now, of course, we have a COVID-19 virus to contend with. But the one thing that I can say without uh, a shadow of a doubt, and that's the fact that the African-Americans are resilient people to have dealt with over 400 years of of white supremacy and now another pandemic because we have survived pandemics before. It's just one more thing that we have to contend with, but we are um, the descendants of people who were quite strong, the ones who, who cannot be killed. So we have a lot to remember in terms of just recognizing our own strength as a people. We know that individually we can be um, uh, overwhelmed, but collectively, we have always been able to beat the odds against the odds, given our will to survive and to strive. Um, so with that in mind, um, that's the uh, framework that, I, that I, I would like to set our, our, our discussion with, um, because too often times we don't think about resilience. We think about just simply suffering, but being able to not just uh, overcome the obstacles that we'll face, but to really strive beyond what is um, the apparent struggle um, uh, immediately is so important. And talking about that resilience, um, I'm glad you brought that up and as a way to frame our conversation today. Uh, yes, we as a people have been tremendously, re- tremendously resilient throughout the years, over 400 years plus that we've been here on these shores in the United States of America. However, I always said that people like myself, like you, and other people of color need to be in therapy every day. That used to be what I used to say. And people say, well, why do you say that? <laughs> you know, why do you say that? What do you mean that? What will you mean by that? I said, because a lot of time we have that stigma that we shouldn't seek help. Seek help. We are resilient, oh. yes. But mm-hmm. also we need something else, too. Sometimes we need just a little bit of help. Sometimes, you know, the community might not be someone that we can reach out to and a family may not be available for us to reach out to um, a spouse or siblings may not be able to reach out to them. How do you now with that person who may not have that support system help themselves in especially times like these, but just like I said, in day to day life, they may be lost their housing. They may have lost their job, whatever the case may be. What can they mm-hmm. do to help themselves? Well, first and foremost, I think it's so important that we remember that just like when we have 
physical challenges. If, if we break our arm or our leg, we don't hesitate to seek out a physician. The same thing is true um, in terms of our, our mental well-being. All of us have psychological challenges uh, which can really test our ability to, to cope. Um, so just like we would seek help from a physician for medical conditions, we should not hesitate to seek out uh, um, counselors, therapists, psychologists, people who have the expertise to be objective and to help us uh, learn skills and to overcome the challenges that we're faced. However, I might give you uh, an example from my life. I grew up in Chicago on the South Side. I'm the youngest of three sons. And no one on the South Side of Chicago ever had a psychological problem while I was growing up. I grew up during the 50s and 60s there. Um, however, uh, while we didn't identify psychosis as being an issue, uh, we had uncles and aunties who had what we call nervous breakdowns. Mm. Yes, <laughs> and yes. it would be uh, a sense away, so to speak, for months and even years sometimes. And when people ask, well, what happened to Uncle Joe or Aunt Sally? Well, they had to go away. They had a nervous breakdown. The fact of the matter is that there was such a stigma attached to having psychological problems that people in, in my community would never admit that they had to go away to a, a mental health institute uh, rather than just simply uh, um, uh, giving the acknowledgement of that, it would be said, well, they just had a nervous breakdown. So in other words, they just got nervous and they broke down and had to go away. But we know that the stigma attached to having mental health challenges is such that it's seen as being something to be ashamed of. It's a sign of weakness. And of course, our um, um, major media have always stigmatized uh, mental health challenges. So no one wants to be seen as being quote unquote crazy. I mean, really, uh, when you look at mental wellness, it exists on a continuum. On one end, you have people who are quite adept. They just simply need assistance to get better than what they are. And on the other extreme, you have people who are so out of contact with reality that they oftentimes need medication just to stabilize their condition so that they can come closer into contact with reality and begin to work on the issues which they're being challenged with. But most of us exist somewhere in that middle and we can vacillate from one extreme to the other depending upon what challenges we're being faced with. So uh, I would like to just say that when we think about mental wellness, it is something which is it's a dynamic state. It's not stagnant. We're not mentally healthy. Um, uh, in the true sense, it's just that we are on this continuum. And once again, based upon what we're, what we're challenged with, it may cause us to not work as effectively on our problems as we can. So being able to destigmatize appropriate help-seeking behavior is something that we have to constantly work on because too, too oftentimes we may seek help from our minister. And it's wonderful that we use the faith-based community to uh, engage in some type of help. But they're not mental health experts. They can help us spiritually, uh, perhaps, but definitely not necessarily from a psychological vantage point because that's not the training, that's not the background. The best thing a minister can do is to help connect someone with a mental health professional who are being challenged so that they can get the appropriate help that they need. And that's not to minimize the uh, value that the faith-based community has, 
they definitely have their value, like medical professions have theirs. But when it comes to psychological challenges, which we all have from time to time, it's essential that we seek appropriate help. Our best friend can help us by getting us to a place where we can receive help, maybe help us set up an appointment, but uh, they cannot be our therapist because they simply don't have the skill, even though they love us dearly. And the same would be, a, be true of family members. So I'm glad you brought out that up too as well, the faith-based, what their, what everybody's role is, what you're really saying. Everybody has that lane that their, yes. that their, that their, that strength lies in. And so not being willing to step outside that lane sometimes I think can hurt us. things I want to talk about in particular well actually three things and it comes to kind of generational thing first is let's talk about our younger people and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how um, health professionals can seek help themselves because I think you know in this time that's a lot what's happening as well too they're being totally burned out that sort of thing and I bring up children first because they're being impacted in ways that we never experienced before a having to be um not being able to socialize with their with their peers, being able mm-hmm. to socialize in school like they normally have, um, being able to socialize with their families, you know. So that separation, I think, is really causing a strain, uh, not just on uh, adults like myself, not mm-hmm. being able to see grandkids and, and kids and things like that, but the younger people themselves. What advice would you have for, say, parents or grandparents or, like you said, siblings or older siblings to to deal with? Um, younger people who are now having some of these issues that they can't seek help and find answers they need by social media or the, if they are, maybe it's the wrong kind of message that's being sent to them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What advice would you have for them? Well, once again, uh, depending upon their age range, we're talking about very, very young children, let's say uh, between the ages of one and eight. One of the things that can help a lot is to help parents create routines for children. And these routines can can certainly include something educational, something fun, but really to spend time speaking and, and interacting with their children without being judgmental, because certainly children oftentimes will exhibit um, uh, depression as being anger, uh, uh, should say, uh, uh, as a feeling of uh, anger. So it may not be obvious when a child is actually feeling sad. Um, and with teenagers, the uh, same is true as well. Uh, 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 sadness and depression may take the form of anger and, of course, maybe even some substance involvement. Uh, so one of the things that parents can do certainly is to pay attention to what their children are saying and also what they're, what they're feeling, what they're sharing with them and being as much as possible to engage them in, in activities that, that can bring in joy. We know that with uh, this social distancing, it doesn't mean social, social isolation. So there's ways in which we can connect within the home, um, 
through hobbies, through uh, having discussions about TV programs that may have some socially redeeming values, by uh, being able to uh, use the technology to connect with other relatives and friends over the internet through platforms such as Zoom and Google Meets and, and all the rest, but really paying attention to what type of behaviors and, uh, uh, and verbiage our children are using so that we can be in tune with them rather than uh, being disconnected. Because too often times, we know that people, people can live in the same household and be quite disconnected. So yes. uh, one of the things that we have to be very intentional about paying attention and being attuned to our, to our children, as well as other members of our household, that will really save us a lot of pain and anguish uh, that will occur otherwise. And, and, and there's one more thing I would like to mention. It's very important that as parents, parents give themselves, and also, even if you're not a parent, give yourself permission to be tired to be angry, to be depressed, uh, and to remember that you're a human also. So just because you might be a, a caregiver or a spouse or a mate or a parent, you have these feelings too, but being able to acknowledge them, don't um, try to stuff the feelings because that doesn't help. It's almost like uh, sweeping garbage under a rug. Eventually you'll trip over it. Mm, you're right. right. <laughs> so being able to just acknowledge where you're at and to give yourself permission to be human. And then once again, to engage in appropriate help-seeking behavior. Um, one thing that people can do certainly is, is to limit their uh, exposure to the news. Usually uh, if you are, uh, an adult, you might watch the morning news, the afternoon news, since many people are working from home, and the evening news and the 10 o'clock news. And typically the talking heads are saying the same thing and usually they're giving us bad news. Right. So being able to just limit our exposure to maybe one time a day, watch the morning news and maybe the next day, because the news does not change that much in 24 hours. Right. <laughs> so you don't really have to inundate yourself with a lot of negativity. Um, and then also, uh, something else that people can do to help deal with these pandemics that, that we've been involved with is to meditate and certainly to pray, to engage in, in hobbies, to um, uh, understand that the danger in which we are experiencing, the danger of both white supremacy and COVID-19, danger is real but fear is a choice. And we can choose not to live our lives in fear despite the circumstances that we're faced with every day. So I, you brought up fear because I think fear is what leads into and drives racism as one of the things. Um, uh, pick out an athlete, uh, LeBron James had something really interesting. Mm -hmm. He said, we're afraid every day. We as black people mm -hmm. are afraid every day, especially as black men, black women, black children. We are afraid every day. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the, uh, meditation, I think, will definitely help. And like I said, uh, turning off the news and, you know, putting that down and not be so consumed by it. Because it's like I said, negativity rules uh, and also mm -hmm. rules fear and strikes fear in the hearts of individuals. Um, I think that's excellent, excellent advice. Uh, I want to talk now about how people who are the medical professional who are getting slammed now can help themselves. And so many um, know what to do, 
but I don't know if they're opposed to do it, but just feel they can't do it or what the case may be. What would be your advice to someone who's doing it every day? They've done four or five, 18 hour shifts in a row. You know, what can they do to help themselves? Well, uh, certainly if they're faced with a condition, which we've not seen in this lifetime before the challenges, which are first responders, particularly our medical uh, professionals have to contend with. So once again, it's very important that they take care of themselves. The question becomes who cares for the caregivers? Right. Who cares for our medical professionals and doctors and nurses, the, the CNAs and the other people who provide first line care for people who are suffering and oftentimes dying. So it's important that as much as I realize it's difficult, they have to make time for themselves. You cannot work 12, 14, 18 hours a day and not have detrimental effects upon your mind, body, and your spirit. So being able to step away, even if, even if it's an hour, you have to make time for yourself just in terms of being able to rejuvenate all of the things that um, allow it to be possible for you to do the type of work that you do. And to certainly, uh, as much as possible, eat healthy. Too oftentimes, people who are inundated with demands have to eat on the run, but we know that uh, uh, that can have very uh, detrimental effects upon us as well because we have our body and our minds need nutrition. And when we don't make the time, it just has a cumulative effect upon further deteriorating our condition, uh, our, our stress level. So being able to be mindful of the fact that while you're caring for other people, care for yourself, because without that, you won't be in a, in a position to care for others. So uh, as all saying goes, I guess in the Bible, uh, charity starts at home. Care for others begins with care for yourself, first and foremost. Well, that's a tough one. In our society, unfortunately, people who are seniors too oftentimes are pushed to the side, they're put into nursing homes, they're put into places where they're isolated in it. Uh, our community cannot benefit from their presence because they're being ostracized or, or pushed to the side. So it's very important that people engage the seniors by maybe developing a regular routine to be in contact either by telephone or by one of the social media platforms like Zoom, but just routinely make time to let the seniors know that, that they're loved and that, and that people care about them as value to their lives. Um, the thing that seniors can do themselves, of course, is to engage um, in the same type of behavior, reaching out to others, uh, not allowing themselves to be socially isolated despite the fact that we have to social distance and all of the things which i would suggest to younger people i would also suggest for seniors as well such as 
uh, eating healthy, meditating, avoiding toxic substances, including alcohol and any other thing which might uh, be um, uh, toxifying. Also, it's very important that as much as possible for seniors and others to avoid toxic people. Because we know that some people can be uh, a vexation <laughs> to yes. one's existence by the yes. type of negativity that they may bring. So being able to just really uh, avoid people, prevent people from being in contact with you as much as possible who bring negativity. Don't bring because me no bad I, news. Absolutely. We need <laughs> to have as much joy and positivity in our lives to help us combat all of the stressors that we're faced with on a day-to-day basis and many times, several times a day. So one of the things I know I've spoken with you in the past and I've heard you speak about too is, um, and this leads into the question about how the people who have been leading protests or uh, just in the street bar on social media in in their communities or uh, on the organization that they run or have just formed, you always say, know your history. What do you mean by that? Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to give you um, a couple of African proverbs to answer that. One, um, one goes like this. If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you are. If you don't know where you are, you don't know where you are going. And if you don't know where you are going, any fool can take you there. Mm. And we know that our history has been distorted, destroyed, and really debased in, in a lot of insidious ways to keep people of African descent from recognizing the strength that we have. Um, and um, a lot of the uh, stereotypes are just really based in, and founded in white supremacist uh, 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 ideology about that uh, black people are inferior, that we had no civilization before we were kidnapped, um, enslaved, and raped, and murdered, and tormented for hundreds of years. Uh, by Europeans, that we actually had no civilization. But the truth of the matter is that it's just the opposite, because African people created the first civilizations on the planet. The Africans in northeastern Africa actually had one of the longest, over 3,000 years of civilization, longer than anything that the Romans or the Greeks could even imagine. In fact, they didn't even, even exist while we were building the pyramids. Um, and creating the foundations for all of the sciences which exist today. Medicine, including um, uh, uh, architecture and law and you name it, we already have the foundations for that for thousands of years. And the Greeks and the Romans came to Africa, Northeast Africa, Egypt or Kemet to be more exact, to actually learn. Um, so, so, so the lies which, which have been taught about black people is that we are inferior and is is just completely false. But our educational system has historically taught the lies of white supremacy, the lies of racism, that the European was the epitome of what of what it meant to be good and smart um, and intelligent, etc. When really uh, Europeans had absolutely no right to hold themselves as being the as as being the universal standard of anything. Uh, other than for themselves, right, but right. but too often times our educational system has pushed the lie of white superiority and black inferiority. And if you happen to be a person of color, somewhere between black and white, you were always seen as lesser than 
that of the Caucasian. So it's something that we need to dis- dispel and eradicate because it's very harmful. We know that, that the bottom line for white supremacy, it was uh, primarily designed to keep black people from competing. It also was used to, to destroy hope. And we know that when we destroy hope, we destroy life. Man. Yes, absolutely. I agree. We're speaking with Dr. Anthony Young, uh, who's the president of the Denver Rocky Mountain Association of Black Psychologists, just about a a variety of subjects in particular. We're talking about the mental health, um, well-being of people of color, of black people in particular, um, not only just during this pandemic, uh, but also just in everyday, everyday life as we live our lives and go on and be human beings. Um, One of the things you talk about, too, that I've heard you speak about a lot is um, identifying fear, what your fear is that's holding you back from achieving your, your goals. Uh, can you speak on that a little bit? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, fear can be very paralyzing. And it keeps people from acting in ways which, which would be to their best benefit. So, so oftentimes when we find ourselves living in fear, we just simply don't look at all of the possibilities that can help us resolve whatever situation that we're faced with. In fact, there's um, an interesting song that goes something like this. Uh, it's the name, uh, the name of the song is Imani. And it's one of the songs that we use on Kwanzaa to help inspire. And one of the refrains in the song goes something like this. Live life by faith and not by your fear. And when we live our life by our faith, we can recognize the fact that we have abilities, we have resources, we have support systems that we can tap into to allow us to not just overcome the problems that we have, but to really create possibilities for being, for beingness, for being better, as Spike Lee would say, to be more better. (laughs) Um, And we can only do this when we recognize that we're not prisoners uh, except uh, within the uh, mental um, prisons that we create for ourselves. And fear represents a mental prison. It, it represents a psychological uh, incarceration of our possibilities. Quickly, you, you talk about prisons, but let's talk about really mass incarceration or how people uh, who are incarcerated now would, are probably dealing with mental health issues. It's got about 30 seconds. Okay, very quickly. I'm a, a past chairman of the Colorado State Board of Parole, and I've served on the two governors, Governor Romer and Governor Hickenlooper. Um, I can tell you that in prison, there's very, very little mental health treatment provided. Typically what is available would be uh, uh, psychoeducational groups, uh, substance abuse groups, but there's really no substantial psychological assistance given to people who are in prison. The best thing that we can do as a community is to make sure that when these returning citizens come back to our community, that we have the resources available to deal with their behavioral health needs, the housing, the employment, um, uh, and their uh, behavioral health needs so that we can have more support for them. That would help to eradicate some of the mental health challenges that they will have returning back to our community.
We're talking about the mental health issues that exist with our communities that are incarcerated. In particular, I know that it's a disproportionate amount of people of color that are in our prison system. Can you speak on that? Because you have uh, such a vast experience in that area. Uh, yes, Donnie. First, let me say that um, I, I served twice on the state parole board here in Colorado, once on the Governor Romer in the 1990s, and then as chairman of the state parole board on the Governor Hickenlooper during his first term. And I've worked in criminal justice, uh, uh, in uh, forensics and clinical psychology for about 40 plus years in Colorado. And one of the issues is that there's a disproportionate number of African-Americans and people of, of, a, of a Hispanic descent who are incarcerated. Now, I would dare say that um, the people of color do not have any greater proclivity toward criminal behavior than people of European descent. It's just that the criminal justice system has been quite racist. And we find that people of color, particularly African-Americans, are more likely to be uh, uh, charged, arrested, incarcerated, um, uh, disproportionately rather than uh, people who are of European descent. And that's a reflection of the racism, not just in, in, in policing, but also in the uh, uh, judiciary. And of course, when it comes to the uh, prison system uh, as a whole, um, uh, individuals who are incarcerated by and large receive very, very little behavioral health treatment while they're incarcerated. There may be some substance abuse groups and maybe some uh, uh, group therapy dealing with uh, anger management, but there's very, very little because within the uh, correction system, uh, behavioral health issues take a lesser priority because the biggest priority is about keeping people incarcerated um, and isolated from society. So when we think about the whole issue about rehabilitation, uh, it's a bad joke because many people do not need rehabilitation. They need habilitation, if you know what I mean. Mm. We don't want to return them to a previous uh, state because that previous statement may have been dysfunctional. Right. So when we think about the type of help that people need who are incarcerated, uh, certainly behavioral health, uh, uh, treatment, oftentimes medication is needed, uh, but also being able to assist those people who have poor educational achievement. What would happen if, if inmates were allowed to attend college while they're incarcerated? Would that, in fact, increase the possibility of their uh, employability after incarceration? Most likely. However, we still have the stigma about people who are commonly called ex-offenders, uh, ex-felons, et cetera, rather than just simply saying these are returning citizens. These are people who are our cousins, our brothers, our neighbors, our relatives, our friends, uh, people that we grew up with who may have made some poor de uh, decisions and ended up being incarcerated. These are returning citizens who are going back to the very communities that they left to begin with. So we have a responsibility to embrace them and to uh, welcome them back into our community with a hope that um, that they can actually get on a better footing and that, and that through our acceptance, they can move on with their lives in some positive way rather than constantly punishing them because uh, they made some poor choices perhaps. So rather than denying housing, um, uh, educational loans and grants and, uh, and employment, 
uh, what would happen, in fact, if our community would actually welcome these uh, these uh, individuals back and provide some opportunity so that it would be less likely that they would be uh, uh, falling back into previous patterns of behavior which uh, are non-functional or dysfunctional for them. That's our challenge as a community. So the faith-based community, as well as the political um, uh, uh, structure within our, our society has both failed in that regard. Well, I don't know if you saw the piece last, um, recently on 60 Minutes, where I think it was Kenya, where they were allowed in prisoners to, that was a young gentleman out of South Africa who um, became a lawyer. I think he originally was a doctor. Um, mm -hmm. And he started a program where it would allow prisoners to uh, attend college at the University of London, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, virtually, <clears throat> and sometimes having the uh, staff and professors come there as well. And they were mm -hmm. becoming lawyers themselves and mm -hmm. defending mm -hmm. themselves and changing mm -hmm. the justice system there in Kenya. So it was just amazing, like you said, giving people opportunity to change their life. Um, people would, most people would take, take advantage of it. You know, of course, some people won't. Some people are just who they are, you know. Yes. But for the majority of the people that were in the story, uh, and this included guards as well, too. Mm -hmm. The guards wanted to, because they didn't want to be, like they said, you know, having their brothers and sisters like this. They wanted to have them opportunity to be good contributing citizens to the society. It only made it a strong society if everybody contributed. Um, I think Absolutely. I think that's what you say. One of the failings of, uh, of our country is that they don't want everybody to contribute to society. They want to have and have not society. And that's really been re relevant and elevant and evident um, in this in the pandemic um, is to have and have not. Absolutely. And, and let me just add to that, because we know that, that the prison industrial complex need raw material. Right. Like, like any uh, manufacturer or factory, the raw material for the prison industrial complex are people, mainly black and brown people. And we do know that our society has been extremely over primitive when it came down to people of color. Mm -hmm. I was um, on the... Uh, on the, the state parole board here in Colorado back in the early 1990s. And I remember talking with one of the state senators and his whole idea about the prison system was that he wanted to build more and more prisons, even privatize them, because that would reduce uh, the crime rate. And he called it being tough on crime. I called it being stupid on crime because mm. you cannot build enough prisons for people because Lawmakers believe that their job is to make more laws. Every year, there's more laws being created to criminalize more type of behaviors. Um, so there's no way to actually build our way out of this, 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 this crime problem that we have in America. We just simply need to become smart on crime. What would happen if, if in fact, crime, should, should say, what would happen, in fact, if the punishment for crime was, was actually commensurate to the offense itself? Rather than, than sending someone to prison for non-payment of child support, we would all agree that people should take care of their own kids, perhaps, if they're able. But what would happen if, if rather than sending someone to prison for $30,000 a year, we actually put them into a halfway house and had them work so they can take care of their families and take care of themselves? Right, right. Rather than what has happened traditionally. So same thing would be true about substance use. We have incarcerated 
thousands and thousands of people who were substance abuse users rather than providing treatment for them within our community. So we've been very, very foolish on, on crime and we've not used the resources of our community and of our government effectively because the prison industrial complex just simply is self-perpetuating. So we need to not just think outside of the box. And when we think about what people call as prison reform, we need to throw the box away. We need to reconceptualize how we treat people who have uh, made poor choices and harmed other people and uh, at times even harmed themselves in our society. We have to rethink this. And I do believe that as Americans, we have enough brain power to do that. We just simply have lacked the political will to do anything better than what was done. Well, I think that would also go to, just not the prison, let's talk about the fact that people want to, uh, when it comes to um, police reform, uh, and I yes. use that term reform too, because they need to be reform yeah. as well too. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, how, you know, well, before the person hits the system, how can we help these in the training of police officers to, so that well, the person does not ever hit the system? Well, there's a lot of issues there. First of all, um, those of us who know anything about how the uh, police system in this country developed uh, yes. during the time of so slavery, mm-hmm. we know that uh, it was never about really anything other than uh, keeping black people and other people of color in check in their place. And of course, it expanded its role uh, throughout the years. But the, the bottom line is that as an institution, policing has always been racist at its core. That's why even in uh, cities where you have a vast majority of people who are African-American, the majority of the police force are not African-American. And we do know that, and and this is well documented by the U.S. Department of Justice, that there are any number of of racist groups uh, functioning within police departments, including the KKK, the the, the neo-Nazis, et cetera. Um, so we cannot expect for people who have that mentality to be fair and just when they encounter people of color. That just does not happen. And the killings that were seen by police officers speak to that. But uh, one part of your question dealt with what can be done about the training of police. First of all, police departments have not been conscientious, in my opinion, about the type of people that they've hired. There have been known individuals who have had psychological issues, who have had various um, uh, racist attitudes and histories of uh, violent uh, behavior toward uh, people of color who were hired. Uh, They would maybe leave one police department and go to another and carry on the same type of behavior. So uh, the psychological profile of someone who we entrust with a badge and a gun must be at a much higher standard than what we've uh, seen heretofore, because there are definitely many people who should have never been on the uh, police force. And as we look at our history in this country of lynching and of uh, police killings in, in various ways, those incidents could not have occurred unless law enforcement was involved in some way uh, directly or complicit. So- and I think anyone who have read any of the books by Ida B. Wells can see the type of documentation which supports that comment that I just made. 
Well, I'm, I know you don't have a ton of time. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. And Dr. Young, yes. I can't thank you enough for being with us on Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Uh, continued success to you. Continue good health, and we'll speak again in the near future. All the best to you. I appreciate that, Donnie. And hey, brother, stay well, stay blessed, and uh, hey, let's be in touch. All right, you take good care. Okay, peace. Okay, peace. <laughs> That concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Our producer and director, Danielle Betts. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by the Bonfie Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, Arts and Society, and Karen and Johnny Klein. Destination Freedom Black Radio Days is produced by Danielle Betts. The series is remixed by Maurice Smith, a.k.a. Reese. Make sure you check us out at NoCredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts, hashtag NoCreditsProduction, LLC, hashtag Black Radio Days, hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.